Hey folks, Duncan Kinney here to remind you that the Progress Report is a proud member of the Harbinger Network. And a pod on the network that I want to highlight is the latest from a new podcast on the network called Darts and Letters. Host Gordon Kadich has multiple guests on this latest pod that I want to talk about, even including our own guest today, the incredible Hillary Agro. And this latest pod is nailing down who exactly Canada's dumbest public intellectual actually is. Uh, it's a fantastic pod. It features not only Hillary, but multiple other fine folks on the Harbinger Media Network, including Andre Goulet, the, the founder of it. And also, now that it is officially December, we are officially in funding drive season. And as weird as it is to say, podcasting is my job. I mean, it's not my whole job. Uh, I have a bunch of other bullshit I do, as well as, you know, the original investigative journalism that you can, can't find anywhere else on, you know, the theprogressreport.ca. But podcasting is a regular part of my work and it's it's really kind of weird to think about thousands of people download this podcast and like it and hopefully get something out of it and if you are one of those people i need to ask you for something i need you to become a recurring donor five ten twenty dollars a month whatever you can afford we absolutely cannot do this work uh, without your help and it's really easy there is a link in the show notes and you could just go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons that's it for the funding drive ask this week, but I'm just going to keep asking all December. So if you just want to bust over this part for the next few weeks, uh, just just donate now and then you don't have to worry about it. Now, on to the show. Friends and enemies, welcome to The Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. Recording today here in Amiskwachewaskagan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory on the banks of the Kasiskasawanasipi, or the North Saskatchewan River. Joining us today is Hilary Agro, a drug use and policy researcher and a PhD candidate at the University of British Columbia, as well as a content creator extraordinaire. Hilary, uh, welcome to the Progress Report. Thank you. Hi, it's lovely to be here. I am very pleased to have you here. So we did uh, reach out to you for a piece we wrote uh, recently that kicked up uh, a bit of controversy here in Edmonton about how a recent academic study showed that 76% of Edmonton cops don't carry Narcan. You you remember this? Yeah. Yep. Sure do. That number (laughs) really is, uh, was quite high. Um, Yeah. And when I saw the report, I was like, Wow. Uh, what what were your thoughts when I kind of initially alerted you to this the existence of this this academic study from University of Alberta and McMaster Academics? Well, I was disappointed, but not surprised. Oh, <laughs> yeah. the classic the classic response. <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> Too you bad basically, years. yeah, you could apply that to basically anything cops do, and and that's going to be the answer. But um, yeah, it's uh, but it's but it's it's frustrating because. You know, those of us in drug policy and people who use drugs, like we know that these that that cops don't view people who use criminalized drugs as fully human, that they're not interested in reviving us. Like on the whole, obviously, we don't want to generalize, you know, not all cops, but like as an institution, their role is not to like protect and serve and save lives. It's to like, you know, it's order and control and um, and, and maintaining the power of the state. So the the idea that uh, 76% of Edmonton cops um, are aware that they could carry a life-saving medicine that could 
save, you know, dozens to hundreds of lives a year, and they choose not to because of whose lives they would be potentially saving is, yeah, not surprising, but it is um, enraging. (laughs) So we will link to that story in the show notes. Within that story is the link to the academic study itself. And I do encourage you to read it. It's very digestible. It's like eight pages, like Mm -hmm. seven pages of actual content with like the eighth pages for the bibliography and the references. Like it it is a very straight ahead piece of academic work. Yeah, it's well written. That's well written, easy to understand. And they actually talked to cops. Like, what can you say? Like, like they actually did the work and talked to frontline cops in both Edmonton and Calgary. And like the other wild part of that too is just is how big the disparity was between Edmonton and Calgary cops, where it's like 76% of Edmonton cops never carry Narcan, whereas 28% of Edmonton cops never carry Narcan, or sorry, Calgary cops never carry Narcan. And it was just like this huge disparity in just like Mm -hmm. awareness and like how many uh, Calgary cops carried Narcan versus Edmonton cops in this survey. Like it was, it was wild. Yeah, it's, uh, it's significant. Um, we should, like, we should be just able to talk about, you know, oh, if there's like 20 something percent of cops, like that should be the focus, because that's still way too many. But yeah, 76% is just, that's not acceptable. And and this story caused a, a bit of reaction from the Edmonton Police Service, who, uh, you know, unfortunately, did not make carrying Narcan mandatory for frontline cops. They did not institute or start up a service-wide education effort in order to educate cops about the opioid opioid poisoning crisis and why they need to carry Narcan. No, instead, uh, they published a page called Police Use of Naloxone uh, in order to, like, deal with the backlash that they were getting. And uh, I think it's worth uh, kind of, like, doing a a bit of commentary on this, like, spin that they've put out. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm just going to quote from it, and I'm just going to get your reaction, um, Hillary. Mm -hmm. A report, uh, and it links to the, I think, to the abstract that you you would have to pay for, uh, like, the science direct abstract. And this isn't a report, let's be honest. This This was an academic piece of work in academic study. Yeah, this is a a study. It's like a a peer-reviewed, published, yeah. Yeah, a report issued by the University of Alberta uh, and McMaster University, sorry, I got to keep breaking in here, uh, about naloxone has caused concern among residents that Edmonton police service officers are choosing not to administer the life-saving medication. The report is based on interviews conducted with EPS and Calgary police service officers between 2018 and 2019. So uh, just to break in here, this page originally said that the interviews happened in 2017, which was incorrect, and they mm. they changed it. They corrected it eventually, but they didn't make any note that the the error originally existed. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll get back to it. EPS officers regularly administer naloxone and save lives across the city. All shift supervisors carry naloxone kits, and all divisional stations and holding cells have kits on hand. Holding cells also have an on-site paramedic in the event a detained person experiences an overdose after they have been taken into custody. Because naloxone is temperature sensitive, not all officers carry it as it can be difficult to maintain a consistent temperature during a long shift on the street. Bullshit. The EP- <laughs> the, yeah, we'll, we'll get into it. The EPS does not currently have enough naloxone kits to supply every officer with a kit. However, more officers are choosing to carry naloxone kits during their shifts, particularly in areas where police regularly encounter opioid use. In addition to naloxone, oh, all EPS marked vehicles are equipped with bag valve masks. Blah 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 blah. Anyways, that, that that's that's it. So let's let's get into it, Hillary. Do you buy this like 
this 10 fisher sensitive not all officers can carry it line that they have here no it's like it's a literal lie it's bullshit like yeah okay you shouldn't like leave it lying out in the sun you know or like like, in your car forest fire yeah but uh i have myself carried naloxone during long shifts on the street administering naloxone to people and like and doing you know um street outreach work everybody who does street outreach work does it you can carry it at you know people bring it to to raves people bring it anywhere and everywhere people brought it to burning man uh and it's that is in the desert it doesn't like stop Hillary, working. It, it gets cold here it gets cold in edmonton and edmonton is special um, yeah and what is cold temperatures usually do to medication it prolongs the shelf life <laughs> I, I i can't i don't actually know whether or not that applies to naloxone but generally uh in my experience and knowledge putting medications in cold temperatures does not does not ruin them yeah, um, no, i mean my understanding of this is that like you you don't want to you don't want it to freeze all the way through like you don't leave it overnight in sub-zero temperatures that would be bad for for the drug itself sure but in the but in the context of like a police officer on a 12-hour shift well one you're in your car most of the fucking time and yeah. so if, if, if it's on your person you're fine uh i don't know very many beat cops that are doing 12 hour shifts outside in the just outside yeah and and the amount that would be doing that is not enough to make this acceptable like that's you know and like even on the off chance that that were to happen like carry it anyway just in case maybe it'll work if a hundred percent of them carried it and then maybe two percent of it went bad that's still a hell of a lot better than what we're working with right now so no that's just it's just a cop-out and, and the point that they make about holding cells, having kits on hand, I mean, I, I would have loved that information for when I wrote the story because like the inciting incident of me writing that story where I was eventually tracked down that study was an overdose in a police holding cell. Mm-hmm. And so three times in the past year, there have been suspected opioid overdose deaths or opioid poisoning deaths in an EPS holding cell. And it's like, you're saying they have naloxone. Um, but then like I go back and read the tape of this this incident from 2018 uh, and ACERT, the kind of police watchdog out here, they did this very thorough report where they like went through all this footage and they, they detailed all of the medical interventions that happened to this guy. And the word naloxone or narcan isn't mentioned once in that report. Yeah. And so the reality, like the on the ground reality is not obviously being uh, reflected in this kind of like spin that's being put up. No, and and even just the fact that they say, oh, the EPS does not currently have enough naloxone kits to supply every officer with a kit. How much money do you people have? Don't don't act like it's a supply issue. You could just buy naloxone kits. Like that's not that's not an excuse. Oh, we just don't have any. Well, why don't you use some of your millions and millions of dollars of public funding and spend some money on things that would protect the public? Like, I'm sure they have enough money for body armor and all that bullshit, but they don't have enough money to carry a life-saving medication. It's no, it's, it's completely ridiculous. And the idea that it's, you know, they're, they're like, don't worry, more and more officers are choosing to carry naloxone kits during their shift. It shouldn't be a choice. It should be mandatory because there's just absolutely no reason not to. Yes. Yeah, yeah. so like, like the, the academic study has policy recommendations in it and Policy recommendation number one is make naloxone or Narcan mandatory for all frontline cops. And it's like, it's not hard. Like one, 
the government, the the police have a massive budget. You're absolutely fucking correct. And EPS has like, I think it's like between 380 or $400 million a year, somewhere around there. Like you can find the uh, the money for Narcan in the fucking couch cushions of the EPS budget, right? Exactly. But they don't want to. They don't want to force their officers to do anything, let alone something that is going to save the lives of the very people that they have no respect for and nothing but disdain for. Like, that's what cops do. They arrest drug users. They don't save our lives. And so this response was like, you know, your, your typical kind of like very defensive, never back down, you know, we're working on it. Trust us stuff mm-hmm. where it's like the solution is right there. My guy, like make it mandatory for all frontline cops, like find yeah. the naloxone like uh, in uh, Edmonton was home to a, like a one and a half, sometimes some couple million dollar, um, pilot over the summer which was nasal narcan and i know that eps has access to nasal narcan and they specifically requested it because you know it's easier to use it's not as scary you don't have to work with a needle and a and a vial right Mm -hmm. and uh again if you want to find the money for nasal narcan for every single frontline cop it's there and it would save lives yeah absolutely no they just they just don't want to they don't want to hear it. They don't want the pressure. They just want to put out enough PR spin so that, you know, people will get off their backs and we should not. Another another thing that was discovered in this um, uh, McMaster University and University of Alberta study was that a certain small percentage of frontline cops that were surveyed have inaccurate, let's, let's be generous and call it inaccurate, but they're just wrong views on the uh, toxicity and dangerousness of of opioids like fentanyl in their solid oh. form. Oh yeah, this is one of my favorite topics. This is another <laughs> area where where it's I mean it's an interesting you know, it's interesting to try to pinpoint what the line is between like outright lying and bullshitting um and you know, fear-mongering because they actually believe this. Like it's a very, it's a very blurry line. I think that I, I think that sometimes, um, you know, these outfits they 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 convince themselves uh, oh, yeah. that their lies are true, and so yeah. But anyway, they convince themselves that they've overdosed on fentanyl somehow. Yeah, I mean, um, anxiety attacks are real, <laughs> but yeah. you know, overdosing on fentanyl through your skin is not. Yeah. So while the EPS did put out this new website, you know, trying to educate people about how the police uses and what its relationship with Narcan is, there is still a website on the EPS's uh, a web page on the EPS's website titled "Drug Safety," which <laughs> uh, repeats some ridiculous myths uh, about uh, fentanyl. And uh, let's let's get into it. I'm just going to quote directly from the page. We'll link to it in the show notes. It's still live. They still haven't uh, updated it. I've I've linked to it in my reporting. I've discussed it in my reporting and on social media. For whatever reason, they still leave this shit up there. Quote, touching or ingesting even a small amount of pure fentanyl can render a person unconscious and in need of immediate <sighs> medical attention. It's just, it's just, oh my God, it's bullshit. It's literally well, not medically possible. I mean, well, ingesting, takes, yes, but touching, no. Yeah, and, yeah, ingesting, yes. Like if you're injecting it or snorting it, yes. If you're just touching it, no. But here's here's the quote from Guy Pilon with the EPS Drug and Gang section. All it takes is the equivalent of three grains of salt on your skin or tongue to cause respiratory distress. How so. dare this man? Honestly, like the, just 
it's and this is it's it's really clever of them to just say things like yeah just three grains of salt on your skin or tongue because people will focus on the three grains of salt and how absurdly small that is and dangerous that is and completely gloss over the fact that skin and tongue are different routes of administration and one of those things does not absorb fentanyl like it just doesn't <laughs> yes it, it doesn't it simply you can't does say not. that and yeah. it's a big difference because sure cops may be coming into physical contact with fentanyl like not as often as they would claim but in terms of like their physical skin like there's an offhand offhand chance and that's what they argue you know they can't they don't want to revive people from overdoses on the off chance that they touch fentanyl and so that's why they just let people die but it's it can't go through your skin that's not possible that's not how it works you could hold fentanyl in your hand you can hold a big pile of it and you're not nothing's going to happen if it's on your tongue, that's a different story because that, then you're ingesting it orally. But why is it on their tongue in the first place? Like <laughs> there is. How did it get there? Yeah, just, just just try to taste it. So this page is undated, but there is a clue in the next paragraph about when it, it possibly was published, which is uh, very funny. So quote: In its legal prescription form, fentanyl is a powerful painkiller. The street version, which goes under various names, including Apache, China Girl, and Dance Fever, was responsible for 100 deaths in Alberta in 2014. 2014. Yeah, people really go to their dealers and ask for Dance Fever. That's uh, yeah, thing. so the drug names are fucking hilarious and are like clearly not the drug names. I mean, even if they were ever real, they're definitely not real now. Yeah. And like 100 deaths in Alberta in 2014 seems fucking quaint to where we're, yeah. where we're at now. Yeah, right? that's like, pretty we were, outdated. It's almost we were, 2022. Like that's it's yeah. So in 2020, we had I think more than a thousand. I think thousand, almost 1,100. Yeah, uh, that's some some real selective selective choosing of uh of stats. And so ten times what what happened? I mean, who knows when this page was originally published and why they don't take it down? But it's just like it's like come on, man. Well, I've told you about this page. <laughs> you can you could get rid of it. Um, yeah, and it's you know it's it's frustrating. You know all this stuff about skin versus tongue and and everything that they're the, these myths that they're trying to perpetuate about fentanyl and about drug users as well. You know it it, it really gets into and this is some stuff that I talk about in my actual academic research as an anthropologist. Um, is it, it really gets into this these sort of like wider issues of like moral scapegoating and moral panics, uh, you know, they want people, they, they're appealing to people's effective nature, their emotional cores, you know, they're not trying to speak logically about these things. They want people to be afraid because the more people are afraid and the more they other people who use criminalized drugs, the more those people are dehumanized and thus um, the more of a threat they can render them. And that allows them to keep their funding because they need to, you know, keep these dangerous, scary drug users uh, under heel, it allows them to, um, you know, dehumanize in order to maintain uh, racial hierarchies because this stuff often, you know, goes along with racialization and of um, people of color and indigenous people. So it goes along with, you know, the, the <laughs> maintaining the state and colonialism. There, there are so many wider and broader uh, structures that this kind of approach to making illegal drugs seem like almost magically powerful and scary and it, it benefits those structures and it's the reason they're doing it so it's you know yeah that, that is the perfect segue into the last bit of bullshit from this uh drug safety page on the eps's website so quote it's 50 to 100 times more po potent than morphine and 30 to 50 times more potent than heroin pilon mm -hmm. says that potency is why fentanyl is growing in popularity among drug addicts and why so many ad addicts end up overdosing. Yeah. 
I mean, it's just it's like, at it's a like they're going minimum. to the store. They're going to the store and they're like, I want the one that kills me, please. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I, I don't love their use of the word addicts as well. Like that's also dehumanizing, but you know, we're not going well, to get them to get on board with language, but, yeah. um, but it's, you know, so I will say that, um, it's not that they are completely wrong because some uh, people who use opioids do actually intentionally seek out fentanyl because after so many years of fentanyl being in the supply, their tolerance has raised so much that some, for some people, not many, but for some people, fentanyl is the only thing that can keep them well. Um, so it's not completely, um, you know, incorrect to say that some people are seeking it, but it's also an exaggeration. Um, it's not why it's growing in popularity. It's because the supply is unsafe. Fentanyl has been in the supply for so long that people have by no choice of their own had their tolerance raised for them by, you know, just by a result of the supply being like that. Um, and it's also, you know, once again, they, they put the onus and the blame on, you know, drug addicts, like drug users themselves, um, as if it's not prohibition in the first place, that's the reason that fentanyl is in the drug supply. Like it's it's not like a bunch of people who use opioids got together and were like, oh shit, there's like more powerful stuff now. Let's get that. No, people want heroin. Like that's what they want. And that's what they've always want because it's the opioid that feels good. And obviously not everybody wants the same opioids. Different things work for different people. But in general, people want stuff that is easier to dose. They want it to be regulated. They want it to be safe. But when you implement drug prohibition and make drugs illegal, there's this thing that happens called the iron law of prohibition. And this has been studied and it happens over and over and over. It's when you ban a substance, you won't stop people from accessing that substance because you cannot stop people from accessing substances anywhere ever. We have drugs in prison, the most heavily guarded places on earth. People still use drugs there. However, when you prohibit a substance, all you do is, is basically just it's like a law of nature at this point. The drug will still be sold, except it will be um, extracted and reduced to its more potent form because of the physical accessibility of transporting it. So when opium was made illegal, heroin came about because it was more powerful and thus easier to transport larger quantities. When heroin, you know, when there's crackdowns on, on heroin suppliers, then fentanyl came about because, yes, if it's 50 to 100 times more potent, then you can you can transport 50 to 100 times more product in the same amount of physical space when you're transporting it. So that's why these overdoses happen. That's why fentanyl is everywhere. It's because of prohibition, not because of drug users who just want, you know, a stronger high. I mean, yeah, we have like uh, a 90 year old example of pro the iron law of prohibition, right? Which is that when temperance advocates brought in prohibition of alcohol, the popularity of fucking alcoholic spirits and distilled spirits skyrocketed because you only needed exactly. to move around a liter of, of, you know, gin as opposed to, you know, 20 liters of beer. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what happens. Even just, you know, even like when people, when, when 20 year olds are trying to sneak booze into a music festival or whatever, they, they bring hard liquor. Like it's instead of buying expensive beer inside, like it's, you see this law playing out everywhere. And so these myths are incredibly, these myths about fentanyl and opioids are incredibly prevalent uh, amongst police, right? They are ubiquitous. And you find this in 
news stories. You know, earlier this year, there was the incredibly viral story of that like San Diego uh, County Sheriff uh, like flopping around like a fish because he thought he had touched a bit of hair, of fentanyl, right? And there was, uh, you know, people were on their hind legs calling it bullshit. But like this was only the kind of most recent example of this. And and this happens, this has even happened here in Edmonton where I am. I, I did some 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 hardcore Googling, not really. I, I Googled uh, Edmonton police fentanyl exposure. And mm-hmm. uh, these were, this was a story that popped up uh, from March 27th, 2018. Edmonton cop recalls, quote, close call, unquote, exposure to fentanyl. Uh, I'm just going to read you it from the story because it's funny. Uh, Edmonton Police Service's tactical officer, Scott Innes, was driving away from a raid at a suspected drug house when he realized something was wrong. I started to overheat. I started to sweat. I felt my pulse rate was starting to increase, he told CTV Edmonton on Monday. I suddenly started to feel ill. Uh, does that sound like fentanyl to you? Yeah, no. Um Generally, one of the things you worry about is your pulse rate doing the exact opposite. Uh, yeah, that sounds like that sounds like a stimulant overdose. Yeah, it does not sound like fentanyl. I'll, I'll keep going. Yeah, or even just a panic attack. Even very, very likely a panic attack once you realize that you thought you touched something. Uh, read from, reading from the story, Innes was set to lead a group of officers into the home. Instead, he found himself outside patting down and searching a suspect with his bare hands. He had no idea the biggest threat he would encounter that day was the one he could not even see. Oh, God. I hate dun, whoever dun. this journalist was. Oh, this, <laughs> dun, is the, dun, this is dun. the thing. I expect You expect cops to lie because that's what they do. But why do the journalists have to be such like handmaidens for these assholes? Like, it's just... Yeah. Don't be a dupe. Come on. The, the, the slightest amount of critical thinking or asking literally anybody with any expertise in the subject that it does not, that it is not employed by the police would be able to tell them that this, that, yeah, it's, oh, oh I get so frustrated. If you're, if you're a journalist and you're talking about, I mean, it, I think we're largely free from it now. I mean, I think enough people have kind of laughed at that San Diego County Sheriff, like, being an idiot but if just in case just be critical uh, we'll get yeah. back to the story during that pat down search i pulled various items from his pockets i placed them on the bumper of my vehicle Innis recalls four months later it was just a momentary lapse in my judgment alone in southbound traffic on wayne gretzky drive he realized one of the powerful he realized one of the powerful synthetic opiates that had become notorious for their lethal strength was taking hold a colleague responded to his call for help jumped into his truck and rushed him to the nearest hospital medical staff needed to know what they were dealing with as soon as possible. A phone call to investigators prompted a field test of the items. Innes pulled out of the suspect's pockets. It tested for fentanyl right away, Innes said. And then we get your, of course, very now typical description of fentanyl. It is a powerful prescription prescription painkiller, about 100 times more toxic than morphine. According to the RCMP, two milligrams of the uncut drug about the size of four grains of salt is enough to kill the average adult unintentional contact through touching or inhaling can cause death again the touching yeah and it's 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 interesting and and clever the way that the person who wrote this strategically avoided consulting anybody with any medical knowledge um and didn't actually you know they they talked about that oh the medical staff needed to know what they were dealing with so they looked at the suspect's pockets, said it tested for fentanyl, but no medical professional actually confirmed that this was an overdose that they were dealing with. And then it just ends and that's it. 
like yeah like was the cop tested for any drugs like what was his toxicology yeah and the 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 actual like source that they say for this medical claim of you know how much is able to kill the average adult is the rcmp like (laughs) this is just this is negligence it's criminal negligence because this this overdose crisis and prohibition is killing people and if you're a journalist doing this kind of thing then you are helping to maintain a system that is hurting people like fuck (sighs) again if you are a journalist listening to this or you know a journalist and you are writing about that just don't fentanyl and cops give me a call cast a wary eye (laughs) yeah hillary will set you straight call any doctor call call a nurse anybody like yeah so not, this wasn't the only story, of course. Uh, this this next one is from November 2017, and it's actually kind of hilarious in how much of a non-story it is. Uh, the headline is, Fentanyl contact by two Edmonton police officer exposes dangers of deadly drug. Jesus um, this is, it's, just, it's just anthrax for, like, narcs. <laughs> the first, uh, I'll quote from the story, the first fentanyl exposure happened to a member of the EPS's tactical section. Detective Guy Pilon, Guy Pilon, um, that guy again, with the Edmonton Police Drug and Gang Enforcement Unit, said the officer was assisting with a search warrant when he came into contact with prepackaged powders that tested positive for fentanyl. In the second incident, police were responding to a drug overdose call when an officer was given a baggie with a, quote, minuscule amount of powder, unquote, that was believed to be fentanyl. In both cases, the officers were examined by medical staff and found to be unharmed. <laughs> well, then what are we doing here? What are, Why what? is this a new story? Why is this oh a God. new story? Yeah, I mean, okay, so it's pretty funny, but um, I think that that's actually like a really important question to ask. Why is this a new story? And, you know, I kind of alluded to that before when I'm talking about like this, this effective fear mongering. But we also have to keep in mind the audience for these things. It's a conservative audience. And what drives conservative views and clicks and engagement? It's fear. Like they have actually done studies on this, that the conservative worldview is a fear-driven worldview. And so it, the, the, the truth and veracity of these things doesn't really matter so much as appealing to this like very base, effective, you know, um, this, this fear drive that, that it, it, it's, it, it stimulates, uh, ironically, in the same way that drugs <laughs> stimulate the brain and body. Um, when when you are afraid of something, it, it it sets off centers of your brain that you know um, give you stimulation and, and adrenaline, and it's 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 unfortunate um, that at this point there's these these journalistic outlets basically know that and they know that. Um, when, you know, they're driven by the profit motive, all they need to do is make people afraid and they'll keep clicking back and then they'll keep, you know, the, the whole system kind of runs on itself because the more that they make people afraid, the more that people want the police to keep them safe from these dangerous, evil drug users and these mystical, magical, powerful drugs and everybody profits. And that's why in the end, I can't believe we've made it this far into this interview without me bringing it up. But it's capitalism. It's the profit motive. All of these these journalistic outlets are not, you know, I'm not saying all of them, but ones that that do um, reporting this poor, this poor, this like just shoddy. It's because in the end, they just care about keeping themselves employed and keeping the money flowing, and they know that this is how they will get money from people is keeping them afraid. So that's why it's and, quote unquote and- news. <laughs> Yeah, why is this a new story? I mean, fundamentally, it's also important to note that like these myths increase stigma and um, you know make 
people less likely to help people who are overdose and are suffering from yes. opioid poisoning. And like those people need, have a, it's a very simple to help them to get trained on Narcan does not take long to carry around a Narcan thing is very easy. And like to think that like, Oh, if I touch this, this, if I only touch two grains of sand or salt of, of this fucking drug, I will immediately fall over dead is no. like actually harmful to the project of like keeping people alive who are suffering from opioid poisoning very much so so i don't have a good segue into this next one but it was it's on (laughs) broadly speaking on the same subject and you know it's from your neck of the woods as well you're based in hamilton right uh i'm from hamilton uh yeah i'm so you know represent I, i love my hometown but yeah i i live in toronto now and hopefully we'll not be leaving until you know we're priced out by the housing market someday (laughs) (laughs) but yes toronto uh through various machinations which i don't understand because i don't presume to understand ontario provincial or toronto municipal politics but they have moved and started the application process to decriminalize possession of certain uh, small amounts of drugs indeed we're very excited this, this is broadly speaking a good thing right uh, yes, yes, it's uh, it's a very good thing. It's you know it's it's a step. It's not enough, but um, you know I as a leftist uh, do not subscribe to the idea that we should not celebrate small victories, even if they're not you know everything that we want. Um, sorry, uh, there's going to be a little bit of background noise. My baby is playing uh, on the floor over there with my partner, but. Um, yeah, I think uh, we, it's not that we want incremental reforms like this, but it doesn't mean that we can't celebrate them because a, a reform like this means lives could be saved. Um, and certainly, um, you know, even though we're not going to get uh, a handle on the actual overdose crisis until we're able to legalize and regulate, decriminalize will put will waste fewer public resources on arresting people and putting them uh, in jail, which is what we don't want. Yeah, I mean, you kind of have just made a very brief positive case for drug decriminalization, as well as the like, you know, it's not legalization, it's not safe supply, it's not free drugs for everyone who wants them. But less people will have uh, negative interactions with cops if yes. and when this eventually goes through, right? Exactly. We want that. Yeah. So it's it's great. And it also, you know, even, even more than just um, decriminalizing drugs just within one locality, because this is Toronto is actually following Vancouver. Um, and there's a few places in the U.S. now that are doing this as well. Um, it's it, it it creates a groundswell. It creates a movement. It allows other cities, uh, and and especially other you know city council members who are who want uh, you know who are all cowards and just want re-election and, and want to make sure that other people do the do the important work first before they're willing to risk their political lives on on a reform. Um, it allows them to, to look at this and say, hey, well, they're doing it. Maybe we could do it over here. It kind of gives people permission to think that, oh, yeah, we could actually change things and do things differently. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to just take a minute to talk about the process of what's happening here. So, you know, Vancouver and the province of British Columbia and now Toronto, which is you know a pretty sizable portion of, of Canada's population, mm-hmm. all three of these jurisdictions have applied for what's called a Section 56 exemption. And this is under the control, Section 56 of the Controlled Substances and blah, blah, blah Act. Mm -hmm. And essentially they're saying, hey, federal government, we know you have this stupid rule about uh, possession of illegal drugs. Uh, Could you not enforce that rule in this location? And so 
any uh, political, any level of, of government can ask for this, whether you're a municipality, whether you're a province. Uh, and these those three jurisdictions have now made these requests. Uh, I believe Vancouver and BC got their requests in over the summer, uh, June and July, I think, respectively. Mm-hmm. And then now we've got Toronto in November, I guess, end of November. And yeah, it's all pretty recent because I was actually um, I was actually part of the, you know, sort of very group of people that was trying to get people to um, support Toronto's application to Health Canada. We were trying to, you know, they were they were they did a public survey wanting people's sort of, you know, public input on this. So I was like helping to organize, making sure as many people as possible were filling out this survey in support of um, of decrim. And that was only just a, a couple months ago. And now it's it's moving forward. So it's really exciting. And, and so, yeah, so a government can say essentially, please decriminalize X, but like, it's got to go through some layer of like health bureaucracy. And like, I don't think the police have to be on board, but it's probably more difficult if the police aren't like, what's, what are the actual kind of like moving parts? Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of tricky. And as, uh, you know, a, a drug policy colleague always, uh, uh, reminds me, and actually this came up again recently, um, if the cops are in full support, then something is wrong with the proposal. Um, you want to have to fight with the cops on, on these things. Uh, and if they're supportive, then you're not, you're not pushing hard enough, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be beneficial regardless. And that maxim is very true because because Vancouver and BC are further along on their process, they've actually gotten to the 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 specifics, right? They've said mm-hmm. you can only have so much amount of X drug. Yeah. And in both Vancouver and BC's case, there has been a lot of pushback from drug users and drug user advocates and the, the organized uh, you know, people who use drugs community about mm-hmm. these limits. And like yeah. I have actually like pulled the list. Uh, mm-hmm. for, this is very for... helpful, by the way. I saw you, you sent me this and I'm like, I, this is, this is very good information to have. Um, because yeah, it's, uh, it, I mean, even just having a list where each drug gets its own threshold, it kind of reveals just the absurdity of, of the whole thing. Uh, just because it's like, why are, why are we even doing this? Like what, like what is good about having these different thresholds? Like 80, 81 milligrams of Ativan. I'll, I'll ring you up on a, (laughs) on a simple possession charge. But if you have 80 milligrams, I'm, I'm sorry. So it's, 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 it's a fun exercise to just actually go through it because these amounts are very low and Vancouver, again, from my understanding, I had a, I had a brief call with Garth Mullins before this podcast and he was, he was kind of giving me uh the the short story of like this like oh yeah the drug users and the like vandu and, and all of these drug user advocates were involved 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 and at the last minute this fucking this uh, list went out and and it was like what <laughs> so yeah. okay here it is uh opioids including heroin and fentanyl so the big one two grams that's all you get yeah Great. cocaine three grams crack cocaine one gram gee i wonder why there's a disparity there gee that's odd why would we allow people who use cocaine to have more than people use crack cocaine there's no Uh, racism and classism happening there amphetamines one and a half grams Ah, like come on just like say like 15 or 25 or 30 grams and be done with it like Uh, yeah 
Dilaudid, two grams. Okay. Uh, oxycodone, two grams. Methadone liquid. You're really, if people have two grams of methadone liquid, you're going to ring them up on, on simple possession. Yeah. And I, I mean, the, sorry, I don't know if you're, if you're going to finish this list. I have some thoughts on a couple of them. Um, no, I no, have no, the list in front it. of me too. Just yeah, so I, one, I find it really funny that LSD is measured in units. <laughs> yes. You can have 30 units of LSD. What the fuck is a unit? Like This, this unit is uh, the What entire, if it's liquid LSD? And uh, yeah. The entire and, piece, the entire eight and a half by 11 piece of paper is a unit, by the yeah. way. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, but also, um, GHB five grams, GHB usually comes in liquid form. So you're not like how many milliliters, but then that also gets to, gets to the problem with all of these things is, okay, cops, are you going to test our drugs for us? Yes. yes. MDMA, MDMA two grams. You really know what's in that pill. Yeah. What if that, what if it's two grams of a substance and it's only 10% MDMA? Are you measuring the MDMA or are you measuring the random like filler that's in there too? Like, it's just, it's so absurd. Like, okay, if I can have two grams of heroin and I buy heroin and it's actually only, you know, some tiny little amount of heroin, then I guess I can buy more. Like it's just, so how are you categorizing these? Are you just going by what we say they are? Are you going by what they are? It's like, there's all these benzos in here. There's all these benzos in here, right? Like clonazepam, 80 milligrams, diazepam, 400 milligrams. And it's like, okay. So like, from my understanding, street drugs these days are a mix of like opioids and benzos and depending on where you are and what time of day it is and who you talked to last, like, how do you know what is fucking what? Yeah, it's it's, not like it's, it's just, not like it's labeled with a baggie on the side, like written in fucking Sharpie. Oh yeah, no, it's it's patently absurd. It's 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 dummies writing rules because they like rules. It's frustrating, and you know, it's it's also it's also really frustrating because, and I have written about this in my research too. Like this is this is like published work. I wrote about this in my master's research. Um, the harm reduction as you know as a concept is more complicated than just like sharing needles and you know giving people clean needles or whatever if we want to reduce the harms uh, that can come from dr- drug use i mean first we have to accept that most of the harms from drug use actually are a result of prohibition but there are harm reduction techniques that are very helpful to to people who use criminalized drugs and actually can save their lives that make that put them at more risk of um, of incarceration with, with stuff like this. So for example, if a person wants to buy a bunch of MDMA and they find a really good source, it's pure MDMA, they've tested it. The safest thing for them to do if they, you know, have the income, and of course there's a classified here, but if you have the income is to buy as much of that as possible, give it to your friends and keep everybody safe because that way, you know, you've, you have this, this safe supply of it. But now you're a dealer. And so by keeping these amounts so low, they're just encouraging people to only buy and carry in smaller amounts, which puts them at risk from buying more frequently in a more unstable supply. And then they're also putting people at risk just for for trying to keep their friends safe by giving them good drugs. Because, okay, if I, you know, if a person gets caught with, let's say, 60 units of LSD instead of 30 units, whatever that is then, you know, they have done like morally, ethically and medically the right thing by keeping their their friends and, you know, safe by giving them this access to a safe supply. But now they're fucked because the cops can say, well, sorry, you were only allowed to have 30 units. So arbitrarily, whatever we decide a unit is, we're now going to put you in jail. So 
yeah, it's it's exciting when these things when we make these this progress, but it's still just it feels like we're just living in a circus where these people do not want to give up power. They do not want to accept that the entire system needs to be rebuilt from scratch. And so we're just living in this land of cognitive dissonance where we're like, okay, well, yeah, how many grams is enough? And it's just, yeah. I mean, I know we're joking about these, these limits and these, you know, the milligrams of X, but it's like, you just fucking explained the iron law of prohibition. Like if, if the limits are this low and this ridiculous, the iron law of prohibition will just simply once again rear its ugly head. Right? Yeah, exactly. Which they wouldn't mind. So, yeah. And and but it's also it, worth bringing up that this is yeah. largely just like cop shit, right? Well, like, it's, that, this is the thing. As a researcher, I can tell you there is, well, okay, I was going to say there's no group of people that is, no group of researchers that are less listened to than drug policy researchers, but that's not true because my comrades and colleagues in climate science would have something to say about that. But we certainly, it's none of this is based on research because I'm literally a researcher and I am sitting here waiting for somebody to call me to get my expert you know, knowledge to help them craft these policies. And even more than that, the expert knowledge of the actual people who are impacted by these policies, drug users themselves. And nobody's giving us phone calls. They're all just going ahead and doing it. So obviously this stuff is not based on actual science, not based on data. It's just based on ideology, power, and control. Well, so when we get Edmonton to decriminalize our drugs, I will do my very best to make sure that you're on the list of people that they call. But I mean, I might be vastly overestimating my influence there, but I'm just saying, I'm just, I'll, yeah. I'll try. I mean, there's, there's, there's good experts in Edmonton too. Um, there's a lot of really good people doing drug policy work in Alberta, but yeah, yeah. They, the, the hard fight is getting people to listen to experts and it would be nice if the public could demand that more often. And, and when I say this is largely cop shit, I mean, I, I am, I am, being truthful but it's also just like since 2020 federal prosecutors have have been directed to avoid simple drug possession charges when possible mm-hmm. and like that doesn't mean that people still don't get charged with simple drug possession because it's there's a difference between cops and prosecutors uh and then and the, the, the if the cop has the leeway on the street to do what they want like if it's still technically illegal the cop will use that to their benefit right but it, it when it actually gets to a courtroom very rarely are people getting all the way through on simple drug possession charges. Uh, I talked mm-hmm. to a, a, a federal prosecutor off the record the other day, and they were like, yeah, it still exists. And if you were to search how many people get charged all the way through in the courts with simple possession, th- the number is still relatively high. But a lot of those cases, I was told, were um, cases when like trafficker people are charged with trafficking and they plead down from trafficking to a simple possession because it's like a bad case, it's a bad search or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or the the prosecutor simply doesn't want to deal with it. Uh, and then like in Alberta, there's also mandatory minimums. It's like I think a three year sentence for trafficking, whereas a simple possession charge is a five hundred dollar fine. So yeah, well, I'm glad there's people trying to do whatever they can to to plead these things down, but it's just like, it, it's so, I mean, these drug laws have never been good for anybody or actually made sense, but it, it just feels like, especially now, now that the entire world has been thrown into chaos and we all have really much bigger fish to fry, the idea that on a burning planet where we're trying to prevent the next pandemic, that we're still putting people in prison for helping others alter their consciousness it it kind of makes me feel like I'm going insane. Like it's just it's I, I know that this is this is my fight. This is this is 
you know, a, a big chunk of what I have chosen to do with my life is to, is to help end drug prohibition, but it's, it's, it boggles my mind that I have to do it at all and that it's mm. this much of a fight. Can't believe I still have to protest this shit is the, yeah. the classic sign. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think that's a fantastic way to close it. The only other thing I would want to remind people of as we close out this conversation is every single level of government can request this section 56 exemption. So if you know a counselor or are a counselor, you know, at the city of Edmonton in the town of Acme, Alberta, uh, the very funnily named Balzac, Alberta, um, <laughs> anyone out there, if you're involved in municipal government and you want to see a positive effect and just, just to help people live their lives with dignity and respect, uh, go for a section 56 exemption and decriminalize drugs in your, in your municipality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk to people about it, you know, post and support on social media. I know it feels like, like there's not a lot you can do a lot of the time, but we can at least, you know, we can try to control the conversation that's happening around this stuff. We can just, you know, um, just say, just, just be vocal about this stuff and, and say that, no, we need to decriminalize. We need to legalize. Um, and, uh, yeah, send, if you, if you have the spoons, send letters to your city councilors and, uh, and your, your representatives and, and try to get them to, to get on board and, as well. And st- and strike now while the iron is hot. This Toronto shit yes. is in the news. It made national news. Follow us. Yeah. If Toronto can do it, you can fucking yeah. do it. Share Head it on Facebook and with yeah. your with your, you know, boomer uncles and say, hey, we should do this in our city. Yeah. <laughs> and then just don't read the replies. Just don't. That's my and number one don't. tip for social media is post stuff and don't read the replies because it will waste wow. your time. And speaking of social media, we've, we've come to the end of our chat today, but I did want to give you the opportunity to, to plug your pluggables. How can people kind of find you on the internet and follow along with the work you're doing? Yeah. So I'm kind of all over the place now. Uh, you know, I, I am doing a PhD and I, I teach in school, but I'm, I'm increasingly sort of driving my, uh, my education work towards public education. So I'm on Twitter, I'm on TikTok. Uh, which is a recent thing, but people are really liking my stuff on TikTok. So that's, that's kind of blowing up recently. I'm also, I I stream on Twitch and uh, I'm just getting my YouTube channel started on all of those platforms. I'm Hillary Agro, all one word, Hillary with one L. And uh, yeah, I also have a Patreon um, where people support my work. And uh, if people have specific questions or they want me to make videos or, or content about this stuff, because I know a lot about this stuff and I'm just trying to help people out. I do a lot of like psychedelic, psychedelic therapy, um, you know, work and, and uh, advocacy and integration and stuff like that. If people have questions, um, I'm increasingly, because I, I get so many of them, I can't answer them all. So I try to prioritize uh, questions on my Patreon. And I can make videos about that. And then next week, I'm actually restarting my podcast, Bread and Poppies, after uh, a very long hiatus. So, yeah, is it on? Well. Is it on the? Is it on the Harbinger Media Network? Hillary? It sure is. Holy yeah. shit, we, we fucking did it. The crossover, yeah. is, the crossover <laughs> synergies are real. Yeah, I'm talking to uh, to Andre Goulet next week about how we can, um, yeah, get some get some cross content going with the other Harbinger Network podcasts. Well, I am on Harbinger. I know I'm not. There you go. It's it's fantastic. This the crossover synergies are real. Yeah. Well, we're Uh, starting. We're starting early before I'm even like before I've even got gotten the pod back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the the final way I'm going to close out this pod is just uh, with a very quick ask for money. If you want to join the 500 or so other folks who help keep this independent media project going, 
It's very easy. There's a link in the show notes, or you can go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons. You can put in your credit card, you can contribute whatever you can, you know, per month. The recurring donations are quite helpful, but you know, five, you know, ten, fifty dollars, I don't care. Whatever you can afford. Jim and I really appreciate it. If you have any notes, thoughts, comments, I am very easy to reach. I am on Twitter far too often at, at Duncan Kinney, and you can reach me by email at Duncan K at progressalberta.ca. Thank you to Jim Story for editing this podcast. Thank you to Cosmic Famu Communist. Thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>